Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter, underscore NJ Watson. And today we're doing our Paper Scraps episode of the month of September 2019, where we'll be answering your TV writing questions about animated shows, mindfulness, and musicals. Plus, we'll be discussing the latest TV writing news about a pay gap, the importance of spec scripts, and the many WG emails that we've received. So let's get started. <laughs> First up, before we get into everything, we wanted to give thanks to some of our new patrons who have joined us over at paperteam.co slash Patreon. So first up, we'd like to thank Isabel, Mark, Keiko, Jennifer, Carrie, Josh, and Max. So thank you all so much for your support. It means the world. We hope that you're enjoying your exclusive content we put up there. I know we're going to be having some new cheat sheets up real soon, some more good stuff for all of y'all. So uh, again, if you want to be a member of our Patreon and help support the show, you can do it at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's right. And we also want to use uh, this episode to remind you guys that we will be at the Austin Film Festival this year. For me, the first time, I think yours is the second time, right? Third time, actually. And maybe I was channeling Austin when I said all of (laughs) (laughs) y'all. It is on my mind. But it's such a fun time. And if you can come, I highly encourage you to come. If you have a script in the competition, great. Even if you don't, it's such a great networking opportunity. And to sit and listen to some amazing writers give panels and speeches and all that kind of thing. Uh, Unfortunately, we can't really announce what will be on just yet maybe by the time this episode is released it will be public but we will be there friday october 25th through sunday 27 so if you are in town in austin during aff come say hi we'll be more than happy to introduce ourselves and as you introduce you and i'll be like wait you know me but i don't know you what's happening here yeah we love hearing from our listeners i think actually one of the first listeners i ever met in person of this podcast was lauren kanashanti at the last time I went to Austin Film Festival, which has been like two years ago now. So yeah, always like meeting new friends. All right, let's get into your TV running questions. And the first one comes from one of our Patreon subscribers, Jordan Senfer, who sent us an email saying, hi, paper team. I am a new Patreon subscriber, but I've gone back and listened to a bunch of your podcasts. They are all insightful, relevant, and extremely helpful. So thank you. A question I have is related to 11-minute scripts. These appear mostly on animated shows, but are springing up more and more elsewhere with web series. However, I have found it extremely difficult to find examples of this format anywhere. What are the differences between these and Half Hour in regards to format and plot? Thank you and keep up the good work, Jordan Sanfer. That's a great question, Jordan. I think that 11-minute scripts are kind of like the redheaded stepchild of TV writing, and they don't get talked about as much. Everybody's kind of focused on either hour-long scripts or half-hour-long scripts for all the primetime stuff. But you're right, there are quite a number of shows that do 11 minutes. They are mostly in the animation and kids space. I guess that's why there aren't as many of them floating around. We'll see great examples of pilots from Desperate Housewives and whatever on the internet as a resource, but you don't see as many of the kids' animation shows being released. I'm not sure what that is, whether there's less interest in them or whether it's more they're more highly protected, say they're from like Warner Brothers or something like that. Essentially, the difference really is that you have less time and real estate to work with in your story. So a lot of the time from some of the 11 minute kid stuff I've written on for Hasbro, you basically kind of get one A story and then maybe a runner. It's very hard to have two fully fleshed out B stories and things going on with different sets of characters that come in and intertwine because you just don't have the real estate and the number of scenes to kind of get through all of that. So you might just have one main A story that includes perhaps a large number of characters to work in the cast and then some sort of little fun little runner that's only going to come up every now and then rather than another completely divergent B story. So that's that's the main difference. Aside from that, you're often 
pairing it up with another 11 minute, but that's more of a broadcast thing, just so it fills up that half hour time slot. You're not really writing to the fact there's going to be another episode coming right after it. I definitely agree with everything you're saying. To me, the the big difference in terms of the plot is sort of the same difference between something like a short film and a feature film in the sense of you only have so much screen time and so much real estate to tell that compelling story and explore those characters. I think that is probably the biggest, not necessarily barrier of entry, but at least the biggest obstacle that you're facing when you're writing that 11 minute script. I think that's partially why not many people are reading them, uh, not just because on a sort of a industry level, not many people are going to be producing those scripts, but also just on a reader basis, not many people are familiar with 11 minute scripts. Like Nick said, I feel like a lot of 11 minute content ends up in animation. And so right off the bat, most drama writers are not going to read 11 minute scripts. Usually a lot of half hour comedy people are mostly live action. So that's either multicam or single cam. And so even fewer of those people are going to be reading animated scripts. Now that's not to say that I don't I don't think 11 minute scripts are a bad sample to have, but in terms of the wide accessibility of them, I think that's probably the second biggest obstacle besides trying to tell a compelling story in that short of a format. Yeah, occasionally executives will ask you for an 11 minute sample, say at DreamWorks or Disney or somewhere where you're going to be writing for an 11 minute show and they want to know that you can handle that format. But at the same time, you can still get those jobs with half hour animated scripts or whatever it happens to be. So they're not as important. The other thing with animation 11 minutes is that it's much more of a freelance world. There are less writers rooms to be staffed. And they're often willing to take more chances on newer writers. That's how I got my first jobs at Hasbro was just having a half hour animated script that they liked. And so they gave me a shot and I'd never actually written an 11 minute before and worked out okay, I guess. So. Absolutely. And uh, to that point, I feel like the other thing to keep in mind is just on a personal level, it doesn't really hurt to have an 11 minute sample or at least write one for yourself, much like specs in a way where it can just be a great exercise to show your skills as a storyteller in such a limited format time-wise. I think that's maybe why they're popping up in web series, I would argue that, you know, OTTs are web series in a way. If you look at the Wikipedia page of Netflix shows, they are still described as internet series or something like that, Mm -hmm. not television series because they are online. Anyway, to to go back to the point of the web series, I feel like a lot of platforms are looking for those intermediary period. I know uh, Quibi is definitely angling itself towards that short from content. Uh, YouTube obviously is always looking for shorter from content. And that's not just because they want more content, but also because they know that that they can replicate that model over multiple episodes and still maintain a small budget because of the length of those episodes. Yeah, you've got places like New Form Digital as well that do these pilot programs where they'll have people create series like that and then they'll use that as almost a proof of concept to go see if they can make it into a longer form series somewhere. So it's definitely a thing, but I would say they adhere less to the traditional like animation kids 11 minute kind of format and more just, you know, whatever happens to work for that story, almost more like a short film. Right, I feel like to that idea, I mean, again, it goes back to the short film idea of it's hard to pull off something that can tell that self-contained narrative in 11 minutes while still being the beginning of a show. I think that's probably the other obstacle that comes to my mind right now is just how do you replicate 11 minute format dramatically speaking, especially if we're talking live action with stakes, not necessarily an animated show, but actually something with uh, higher stakes and maybe it has a genre elements. That's another element that's going to be difficult to pull off in the long run. So that idea, I feel like it's just something that's really valuable to be able to pull off in a scale that can be honed. Totally. I have actually been writing a digital web series for a producer and I've run into these same problems. And these episodes are probably closer to like a five or six minute, seven minute length instead of a full 15 minutes or whatever it happens to be. And I have found that the format, it is hard to tell an episode 
of television or story in the traditional manner. And what you end up kind of doing is more of a vignette or a scene or a moment that feels like it has a sense of resolution, but it's also leading into the next thing. So, you know, you're just finding one of the most interesting pieces of this story that I could tell one at a time that can connect together in some way, but also feel like its own little thing. It could be a short film, but it could also be a part of something larger. And I feel like you often end up with a version of a soft anthology series where it's like a day in the life of this character, and then every episode is going to be a different version of that or a different moment in their lives. And so by definition, even though it's not quite technically an anthology in the strict, you know, Twilight Zone sense, it is still an anthology in the sense of every episode is going to be about this independent moment in time and narrative that is unconnected realistically from the other serialized elements of the show. Absolutely. Yeah, but great question. Uh, best of luck writing 11 minutes. Great. We also got an email from Danny Dalla, who said, Hey, Alex, I really appreciate the awesome work you and Nick are doing with Paper Team. It has been so helpful along my television writing journey. And I had a question for the two of you. I'm currently working on a musical comedy pilot along the lines of Gallivant. And I was wondering if you have any advice or do's and don'ts on how to successfully incorporate musical elements into a pilot. It would really be cool to potentially hear you interview a writer who has written on a show with musical elements such as Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Anyway, keep up the outstanding work you two are doing wonders for writers trying to break in. Best, Danny. Thank you, Danny, for that email. And before Nick answers the question, we will be interviewing musical comedy writers in the future. So that's definitely something to look out for. So again, this is a really interesting question and it's a format that you know not as many people are familiar with. I have actually written a spec original musical comedy pilot. So I did a bunch of research and became familiar with the conventions of it and ended up writing my own. And it can be done in different ways. Now, Gallivant, you mentioned in particular, is interesting because what they did with that was essentially abbreviate it. They would say, and then he sings a song about how great he is as a knight and how he's going to roam across the land and kill everyone. And it's a really fun romp and everybody has a good time. That's literally what they put into the script. You can find it online. And then they would have their musical writers, who I think was Alan Menken, who's a, a big kind of Broadway hit. And they would go and write the songs and put them in there knowing you know, what the intention of it was and what the song needed to do. So it wasn't actually the writer themselves sitting down and writing the song into the script. Now, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, on the other hand, goes a different way and actually includes all the lyrics to the songs and the blocking of the dance numbers and all that sort of thing within the script itself. And what they usually do is do it sort of in capitals and italics, and they will use slashes to denote the breaks between lines for that. Now, that said as well, I've heard that the behind the scenes process is more that they do, again, have separate musical writers who go off and write the music. And so they're probably just going and reincorporating that back into the script once it's ready for production. And it's not the writer's room themselves who are sitting there and breaking and writing a song in the room. So all of that said, when you are sitting there writing it by yourself as sort of like an original and you want people to think that you're cool and interesting and funny and can write great musical comedy, you probably don't want to do the Gallivant approach where you're like, and then he sings a song about stuff and it's really good because people are going to think that that's kind of lazy and cheating. You can do it if you're Dan Fogelman or whoever, because he knew that he was going to have Alan Menken go off and write the songs. And this was more for production. That's just kind of his style anyway, in terms of the asides to the reader. But yes, I would recommend you do more of the crazy X approach where you are writing your own stuff and, and making it seem musical, but it's hard. When I was sending that pilot around to people, it was hard to kind of get the reaction because they can't hear what's in your head. They don't know how funny and lyrical and whatever this is. They're just kind of reading it almost like poetry on the page. And so it's really hard to hit that right note with the reader. Yeah, I definitely agree. I feel like the potential danger you're running against is just this idea that you're using this as a gimmick and that it doesn't feel organic for the story. And I can 
definitely imagine that if I'm reading a musical script on the page without any music in the background, then I'm just going to read it as a piece of dialogue or like you said, a piece of poetry. And that's going to be really hard to absorb, even though it may be funny, but it's hard to sort of like ingest it in the way that musical can be ingested because at the end of the day, you're reading a script. It's just a piece of paper with words on it. So that's definitely one bump. The other thing I did want to address on the running side is that the musical component needs to be used in a way that showcases character or story, much in the same way that you're using dialogue to do those things. When I think of classic musical episodes, even on shows outside of Crazy X and Gallop and something like obviously Buffy or even Ally McBeal in an even better way, those shows used those musical set pieces to showcase character moments. Ellen McBeal famously incorporated musical elements in his third season to show someone's illness. And so I feel like that's a tool in your arsenal that uh, whether it's about sort of showing what a character is going through or expositing emotional turmoil that they're feeling or even revealing a big twist, narratively speaking, like Buffy did in Once More With Feelings. I think that's the opportunity you have, much like with dialogue in a very different way, of using and making those musical set pieces count, and not just as a gimmick, but truly as a launching point moment for your pilot. There's a good piece of advice that characters should only break into song when there's no other way that they can express what they're feeling or that you can express what you need to the audience. In this way, it can't just be handled through a dialogue scene or whatever. They really have to unleash their inner turmoil that they're not willing to tell anybody else in the world. And so we hear that through song or you're playing at some sort of like irony or juxtaposition in the way that you don't just use voiceover to tell us what's already on the screen. If you can have a scene about that, just do that. Same thing with music. You want to be using it in a very clever way to intersect with the story elements that are already in play. Yeah, and to that point, I think like what you're hitting on is just this idea that that the audience, the reader needs to understand why this is a musical. Why are we listening to these songs? Now, obviously, like you said, the prime example is just emotionally, they need to break into songs. But uh, if you look at other examples, like the Scrubs episode, I think it was my musical. That's another example of something where it was a musical because the patient was going through dementia, or at least on a narrative level, we understand what is going on, why this is a musical and not a dry piece of half hour comedy. Yeah. The last thing I'll say is that if you are lucky enough to be talented musically yourself or have friends who are composers or musical writers and that kind of thing, sit down and work with them and write at least one of the songs, whatever the key showstopper, you know, signature song from this pilot is, sit down and write it and record it, even if it's rough and have that to send with your script to people because the difference between reading it on the page and actually hearing it and understanding the execution of it, I noticed that once, you know, we had done some music for our show the reaction was instantly better because people just got it. Even the tone, you know, there was an element of satire to uh, to the, the one that I was writing. It just helps so, so much to be able to hear that. And then they can kind of take that expectation into reading the rest of them and imagine perhaps how those songs might sound. So if you can try to do that, it will help you immeasurably. All right, we have an email from Tony Faria who says, Hi, Alex, your next recent discussion on the value of ideas and imposter syndrome was fantastic. It was excellent to hear you talk about success coming from opportunity plus preparation. The ethos of working on what one actually can control has been massively transformative for my life, and I found a lot of meaning in paying attention to the practical stuff. Pushing through to put the material down on the page is a skeleton key. I was fortunate enough to be recognized for a pilot that I wrote this year because of it. I'm sure I'm not the only one who admires when you and Nick talk about your approach in this way. I want to offer a recommendation. The book of Zen in the Art of Writing by Ray Bradbury is sort of half poetry, half pragmatics, and fully indulgent. There's an audiobook version out there. Hopefully, I can offer some value your way too. Thank you, Tony. 
Well, thank you, Tony, for that great email and congrats on being recognized for Pilot. I have definitely heard of that book, the obviously Ray Bradbury uh, book. I have not read it, sadly, and if you've had a chance to read it, Nick. No, it's another one of those ones that you always hear about, like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance or right. you know, The Artist's Way or whatever. And I'm like, oh, I should check that out one time. But I never have. Obviously, Ray Bradbury is brilliant and wrote Fahrenheit 451 and a bunch of other stuff. So I definitely should check that one out. Yeah, I'm definitely a big fan of the more pragmatic books. I feel like one of the ones that I keep recommending is The War of art by Stephen Pressfield, which may feel a bit, you know, again, like esoterical and life coachy in a way. But uh, I do subscribe to the idea that on some level, you need to coach yourself and put yourself in a position where you're actively working towards your goals, because this is an industry where you feel so many times like you don't have control. You feel like so many things are working against you. You're one person in a million and you go on deadline and you find someone who's older or younger than you being more successful than you. And that gets in your head. And anyway, the point is that this is a really difficult industry mentally. And so putting yourself in a position where you can have some form of ownership over your actions, whether that's writing a script, whether that's going out to meetings, whether that's putting yourself out there in some kind of way really helps to push you forward and keep your momentum going. Yeah, totally. I find myself constantly kind of struggling with that. And as someone who suffers from anxiety, I'll find that I'm sitting there thinking in my head about all these things and all these like future possibilities of like, well, what if the show doesn't come back? And what if this doesn't happen? And I get all caught up in that. And then finally, when I realize at the end of it, oh, I have no control over any of these things. I've done everything I can. All I can do is keep writing keep putting myself out there and do the best I can and whatever happens will happen, then it's magical. So you're like anxiety, Dr. Strange. You're like, I've seen every possible outcome. Negative outcome. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Only the negative outcomes. That is definitely something that is pervasive. And I'm looking on Twitter. uh, There's been this conversation about the importance of therapy within the context of Hollywood. And I feel like that's definitely something that hopefully down the line we we can talk about. But just in terms of your comment, Tony, yeah, I really appreciate your words in in terms of bringing delights the importance of taking care of yourself in a pragmatic and straightforward way. Well, speaking of mental health and mindfulness. Well, at Paper Team, we value the importance of dealing with those stressful situations in a healthy way. And that's why our sponsor today is the free meditation app, Simple Habit. Simple Habit features hundreds of guided meditations to help you with specific problems in your life, whether that's being nervous about a pitch meeting or your first day in the writer's room. Uh, because Simple Habit isn't just about teaching you to meditate for the sake of meditating, but to actually bring a secular approach to mindfulness, including audio sessions from world-class meditation teachers, therapists, and coaches. Simple Habit won the 2018 Google Play Award for a standout well-being app and has over 65,000 five-star reviews for both iOS and Android. And just for being a Paper Team listener, you can go to simplehabit.com slash paperteam to get a special offer because Simple Habit is offering 30% off their premium subscription for the first 50 listeners to subscribe via our link at simplehabit.com slash paperteam. Once again, that's simplehabit.com slash paperteam to get 30% off their premium subscription just for the first 50 listeners to take that offer. So use this opportunity and get the meditation that is right for you. All right, let's get into some news, including TV writing news. And the first thing we got to talk about is the Adele Lim pay gap. So news was made this week when Adele Lim, who was one of the writers of Crazy Rich Asians, ended up walking away from a deal to write the sequel, along with her original co-writer, Peter Chiarelli, essentially because of the huge pay gap that would have been between what they were going to pay her to be a co-writer and what they were going to pay him for doing you know, the same work on the same movie. I believe the difference was 
10 times as much. I think Peter's potential pay was about a million and hers was about 100,000. And so their excuse was essentially, well, she's not experienced enough. But if you look at her career, and I think that's why we're bringing this up in a paper team slash TV running podcast is because Adele has been working nonstop in TV for over a decade. She's an AP level writer on many television shows. And not only that, but this is the sequel to a blockbuster movie. So the excuse that she doesn't have any experience is kind of BS in my mind. So really, I do feel like that's really troublesome. And well, we got to commend uh, Peter for wanting to split the salary and showing uh, that he was on the Adele side, but uh, good for Adele for walking away and then just saying this is BS. Yeah, exactly. No, it was great that, you know, they were willing to kind of even it out, but he shouldn't have to split his salary. They should just be paid equal in the first place, or it should be coming from the business side of the studio. And there's several problems at work here. I mean, I guess the first one is not recognizing TV writers' salaries, feature figuring into feature quotes doesn't really make much sense to me. Like you've still been having a lot of work as a writer, especially for many, many years. Why is that not considered commensurate experience for uh, in the feature world? Yeah. And I would say what's even worse is screenwriting work on the feature side is much more producing driven. So the experience that he has is probably a lot more than just a basic feature writer in the sense of she's been on set, probably she's been managing budget on some level. She's been in all those creative and, and production meetings throughout her entire career. So she does have the experience both on the page and on set to manage a movie of that scale. I would argue. So it's kind of crazy to me that work is not recognized in any capacity, especially when you compare someone like Peter, who doesn't have the same pedigree in terms of TV work, but has a couple of successful movies under his belt in terms of future writing sites. So why is one thing recognized, but not the other? That's a very bizarre. Right. And the other main issue, which Adele brings up and is quoted in the, the articles as discussing is essentially the notion that, you know, there are so many marginalized people who haven't traditionally been given these opportunities, especially in the feature space, women, people of color. And, you know, if you're basing what you're paying someone off of their previous quotes and the previous experience, and yet you have a system that is built to keep those people out from getting previous experience, then you are enshrining a way to pay them less and keep them out of more opportunities. Um, You know, it's a really cyclical catch-22 thing. I think that's the problem. It's score. It's just like this idea of, well, it hasn't happened before. So why should we start now? Well, because it hasn't happened before. Yeah. That's the whole point. That's been an issue for decades. So that was their opportunity to make a stand and show goodwill on some level or show at least that she was worth it. Because again, she should be worth it, both practically speaking in terms of her TV experience, but also on a personal level, because she was there since day one on that other project. She was there since day one and she wrote that feature. Again, it's not her first feature ever. This would be at worst the second feature of the very sequel of the movie that she's been on last time. So that's uh, that's ridiculous. Yeah. The whole situation is bizarre. And honestly, the quote that she was given, even for someone who had written one highly successful feature is kind of laughable. Like that's still pretty close to scale. It seems like a big mess all around. Now, luckily for Adele, it seemed like she already had a four-year feature writing deal for Disney animation. So she's going to be just fine. But this this really is a, a systemic problem in our industry that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. And let's move on to another topic at hand that was brought to our attention. And obviously, the, the WGA election is happening right now. There's been a little bit of infighting in terms of people supporting one slate uh, over the other. And a few people are using the WGA milling system to just email people their little manifesto, even though most people at this point have already voted. This started when John Wells, writer-producer, who's uh, going to be the enemy of the podcast by the end of this episode, mm-hmm. uh, sent an 
email to several higher level EPs, essentially endorsing Phyllis for president of the guild. And then Robert King of the Good Wife fame answered sort of that manifesto with his own email and his own comments on deadline. Now, the thing is that not every guild member received the John Wells email. So there was a little bit of a Twitter drama in terms of, well, why did I not receive this email from John Wells? And uh, I guess I'm not high enough or worthy enough to, to get an email. <laughs> and then separately from that, there's also this whole system where you can pay $150 to send a guild-wide email to promote whatever manifesto or whatever election related business you want to say i think someone joked on twitter like who wants to pay 150 dollars to send just the mendocino farms menu (laughs) that was literally the thing i was going to bring up i think it was audrey who mentioned that joke of basically people are just abusing that system to just promote their ideas Mm -hmm. of all right let me spend 150 dollars and that's probably what we should be doing we should we should spend 150 dollars on the guild email just to promote a random paper team there you go That's the angle. I think that's the goal of uh, this entire podcast is just, all right, help us uh, use $150 wisely. Send us an email, ask at paperteam.co, <laughs> thinking about ideas of how should we troll the guild membership with yeah. paper team ideas. I mean, this whole guild infighting thing is kind of ridiculous. And I feel like at this point, you know, given that voting closes on something like September 17th, just got to sit there and let it blow all over and see what happens from here on out. Because everybody's made their points. Everybody knows where their stands. I doubt anyone is going to change their minds at the last minute with some email slash lunch order that gets emailed out. So yeah, I just hope that the WGA can all come together again, whoever wins the election and resolve this issue and everybody can go on living their lives peacefully. Yeah. Now the funny thing is, I believe this episode is going to be released a week or two after the election. So it'll be interesting for people to hear us saying this and then probably some major drama that just happened. There's writers rioting in the streets and the writers guild (laughs) building is burning or something like that is where like, I think everything's going to be fine. Yeah. Famous last words. The next thing I did want to mention is Nick's favorite topic, and that is spec scripts. Because a few days ago, Mike Royce of One Day at a Time fame started this thread asking people, generally speaking, why is nobody running specs, especially multi-game specs, anymore? And that triggered a whole Twitter conversation about the value of specs. And multiple EPs chimed in, essentially saying, that they were still reading specs and sort of wondering still when was this change made and sort of the value of specs, even just on an educational level and the value of specs, even on a sample basis. And it sort of snowballed into multiple people sharing the list of all the specs they've written before breaking in, uh, even as recently as this year, all the different shows that they spec'd. And I believe a few people, including Ben Blacker, are working towards making a script reading podcast just about specs. I believe much like he's doing his original pilot or Deck Pilot Society thing. He's going to be doing that for specs. So there's a little bit of a renaissance happening, at least online in terms of a discussion of the value of specs and uh, sort of the, the question of why aren't people writing specs, even though some EPs, especially on the comedy side, are reading more and more specs. Yeah, I mean, my argument to that would be that it is a very small number of EPs and it does seem largely in the multicam comedy sphere. And that's where I, I think I've heard it the most is from, yeah, Mike Royce, Gloria Calderon Callet, Bill Prady, who was running the Big Bang Theory and the, the Muppets back when I worked on that, you know, he was wanted to read specs as well. So it's interesting that it seems to be specifically in this one arena, although I'm sure there are a couple of drama show winners and stuff too. Yeah, I've definitely heard a couple of writers' rooms on the drama side that did ask for very specific kind of spec, but it's usually 50-50. It's not, I believe, that most drama people are not going to be only 
receiving spec scripts that'll usually be receiving sort of a, a mix of both. Now, also, Mike Royce shouted out Michelle Badillo and, and Carolyn Levitch, a friend of the podcast, because they got staffed on one day at a time because of their modern family spec. And I believe that they even talked about that on our podcast, their episode. So you can listen to that. But uh, just personally, I really feel like there's a little bit of a resurgence in terms of the value of, uh, of specs and, and people sort of seeing that as it were. Yeah. I mean, I certainly wouldn't go so far as to call it, you know, like a spec renaissance or anything, but I think that people do rule out specs more than they should in terms of saying specs are dead and nobody reads specs. There are obviously some people who will. It's always going to be handy to at least have one up your sleeve. But, you know, by and large, honestly, here's the other thing, I think, too, having read hundreds and hundreds of original pilots and also specs for various programs and competitions and things, it doesn't matter whether you have an original or a spec. When someone is a great writer, you can tell. And there are elements within there, whether it's working with an existing show or setting up their own world that just like it's a switch flicks in your head and you can just, it comes alive off of the page. And it's just as easy to tell from a spec or a pilot, in my opinion. Yeah, I'll definitely co-sign what you said. And to me, it does boil down to this idea of you should be writing what is your best sample at the end of the day. And that's what you should be submitting or trying to submit. Now, the reality is that most people don't accept specs even in 2019. However, it can still be used as sort of a targeted sample, especially if it's something that's a little bit flashier or a little bit hotter or a little bit more in tune to the show that's being read. Because a lot of those readings that are happening for staffing, they are based on connections and relationships. So if you know someone who can vouch for your spec of whatever show, because you know that maybe the showrunner loves that show and would just die reading your spec script because it's so perfect for that show, then maybe you have a shot. But broadly speaking, I feel like it does boil down to this idea of what is your better sample. Now, I did want to bring up something else uh, to the idea of how come nobody's writing specs anymore. So Dan Signer from uh, also One Day at a Time fame answered the question and he blew this case wide open. And he said, what if specs are not accepted anymore because of packaging? What if it all comes back down to agencies trying to package original pilots? Enforcing the writers to not write specs. What do you think of that, Nick? Welcome to the Skiri Door. Do you have any thoughts <laughs> on music? It's just gonna keep going until you answer my question. Yeah, I think that seems kind of like a conspiracy theory to me. I think that yes, agents and even managers are going to lean harder towards you writing original pilots because there is the potential for them to be able to sell them and package them and get them produced. As we've discovered with this whole WGA ATA kind of thing, there is so much more emphasis on that side of the industry now than just getting writers staffed and taking 10%. But at the same time, I think that they have a pretty good pulse on the industry in terms of they know who is staffing, what's staffing, and what people want to read. You know, showrunners and showrunners assistants are telling them this is what I want to read, send me this. So I, I think you can trust that more than there is some underground lizard man conspiracy to uh, <laughs> to erase specs from Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's like an underground uh, lizard man conspiracy, but I do feel like there is on some level a point to the idea that if you trace back the origin of when writer's rooms and upper levels really wanted to read original pilots over specs, and uh, when the packaging became really a thing, it does 
trace back to the mid 2000s. And that is exactly the pivotal moment. That's around the time when Desperate Housewives was sort of like the big flashy spec pilot sale. And that was also the first time that Paradigm was making its first packaging fee. You know, that's a 2003, 2004 era. And that's exactly the pivotal moment where if you look back, that's the moment where specs were becoming less and less valued as a commodity, as something that people were reading. Now, I, again, I don't want to scrap to the notion that's the only reason, but I definitely feel like there is some correlation, maybe not some causation, but on some level, some correlation in terms of wide movement in the industry of moving towards original material, not just because it's easier to read, but just because of uh, monetary issues. It's not just an um, agency, but also management companies to have those sort of evergreen samples that they can pack at some point over a spec that doesn't really serve any purpose except to specifically staff someone. Our listeners can't see this, but Alex actually has like a big board up with a pin and a bunch of bits of twine and string in between <laughs> pictures. And he's kind of pointing to things and gesticulating his hands wildly. I'm literally that Troy Day. Uh, yes, of, uh, <laughs> that's what's that's going on. No, I agree. I'm sure it had something to do with it. You know, if I had to give it a percentage, perhaps it contributed five to 10% to the decline of specs. But by and large, you know, even you just said agents would prefer to have a sample that doesn't just go out of style and they can constantly submit you for stuff, whether that's for staffing or whether it's, you know, for selling things. That goes back to packaging. That's the whole point is agencies were in part pushing that idea. And now, obviously, I do think like writers, generally speaking, especially now, they would rather spend their time reading their original pilot just because it has less time investment. But if you go back to 2004, 2005, there weren't as many shows. So that investment, I think, uh, was not the same as it is now. Well, I'm not talking about packaging, though. I'm saying if, if, you're, if you have an agent and the agent has five writing samples of yours that they can submit for staffing, ignore packaging or selling shows, and then if they were all specs or they were mostly specs and then in two years or, you know, or one year or whatever, you know, the spec is just going to disappear and they're going to have less things to staff you with. Wouldn't they rather have five originals they could submit for the next 20 years if they needed to? Right. But I feel like that's also to the point that specs were more evergreen than they are now. I mean, to me, it's multiple factors. It's not one factor. It's not one thing. I don't think it's only showrunners not wanting to read specs because I don't think that's the case. It's not just because agencies want to package because that's not necessarily the case all the time. It's all the factors. One element is indeed the fact that shows have become more serialized. So it's harder to write a spec that can be more evergreen or last longer than a season uh, in the same way that it's hard to find a spec or show to spec that many people are going to be reading because there's not that many shows that everybody's watching. There's just so many shows. So mm -hmm. it's really hard to hit that niche. And again, ties back to why is an original pilot generally better as a sample? And that's because you don't need the investment of knowing a show to really understand that pilot. But I would also argue that a really strong spec should stand on its own, even though you may not know the intricacies of the mythology of The Walking Dead. A really amazing Walking Dead spec is going to pull the reader forward still going to provide that cathartic experience without tying it to very specific sort of in-joke and serialized elements of that show. And the last sort of TV writing news and the trend that we wanted to mention is this idea that we we sort of briefly mentioned it in the PT 150 in terms of Carolyn and Michelle's experience on Freeform Show. Just this idea that more and more we're seeing this trend, writers' rooms developing shows, writing full seasons of scripts and then those shows not being produced. It's almost like writing fan fiction, except for the point where you're being paid, obviously. But the latest example was the Book of Enchantment series for Disney Plus and, and Hulu, where that was not really going forward despite a whole season of the scripts being written. Yeah, I believe it was 13 weeks in the writer's room when they decided to kind of shut it down. And it sounds like a lot of the reason for this was just because they're being so careful about their Disney Plus brand. The stuff they're putting on this streaming service is really 
family oriented. They are not trying to put their edgier, darker stuff on there. They're being so careful and protected. I mean, that said, they put the Mandalorian on there. But, you know, at least I guess when it comes to their classic characters, whether they be the heroes, the villains, that kind of thing, they're very protective of the image of that. And they don't want it to kind of for kids to be watching Snow White and then go and watch this show and be traumatized by it and have parents complain and <laughs> there be outrage, I guess. And it seems like that's what the problem was. It was more about the tone and the direction and the the darkness of this show. Yeah, I can definitely hear that argument but even from personal experience on uh, my last show that was definitely a question mark in terms of was this a show where we're spending weeks and weeks writing the series for nothing on some level for just writing those scripts for the network or the production company to just say no and i think that's the danger something that is worrying me a little bit it's just this idea that it's expensive development work just to develop scripts in the same way that production companies and studios are developing feature scripts for decades. It's sort of like the development hell portion, but what if we're doing that for TV now? And I think that's definitely a red flag that I'm seeing, a trend that is worrying me. It's just this idea of where let's spend weeks and weeks in the writer's room working on the scripts, breaking those episodes before we even commit to a production, which, I mean, I get it from a you know a studio and money standpoint, but just creatively speaking, it can be very frustrating, especially when we both know sort of the the hardship of a writer's room and sort of the difficulties of breaking a season and how satisfying it is when you're finally getting to that point. And so you're doing all that work because you want to see it on screen. You're not doing it because you want it in your head. You want it to be on screen. And so I feel like TV has always been sort of almost a guarantee that if you're breaking those episodes, then it's going to be on screen. That's sort of part of the draw of TV, sort of how fast it moves, how you know production intensive it is. And, and now we're moving really to almost a feature development hell model of just let's develop until until we're blue in the face. Yeah, totally. You're right. It is happening more and more. I think a few episodes back, we talked about how AMC had been doing more and more of these mini rooms where they would get a couple of writers together and they would sit there and break a whole season and then they would submit that to the network. That was the point at which they would decide whether they're going to production or not. And, you know, it does seem to be happening more and more. And it's, it's unfortunate. I guess it is also a reflection of the nature of the industry of everything being so much more cable and OTT oriented now. They don't have to fit into broadcast schedules so they can kind of take it at their own pace and have much more control over that. And I don't think it's a good thing for writers ultimately. No, I definitely agree. We'll definitely track that. I think this is uh, something that we will be talking about at length in the future just because personally, I've already experienced it uh, on some level. Granted, that show got picked up so it did work out. But for the majority of the writers' room, we were not sure if that show was going to be made or not on some level in the same way that uh, Carolyn and Michelle found out at the end that their free from show was not made. And you could hear on the recording that they sent us how heartbroken they were. And we were definitely heartbroken for them as well, because we know sort of the creative toll that it takes to do all that creative endeavor and then see it sort of slip away and not being done for reasons you can't really control and reasons that are really more difficult to understand than just, oh, it's just a money issue. It's probably a deeper sense, much like the Book of Enchantment thing. You know, there's definitely some creative questions being asked. It's not just a production scale. It's also sort of the vision of the company. But then you got to take a step back and wonder, well, why did they order the show in the first place? When did they figure out that this was going to collide against sort of the rest of their brand? Surely they should have known that from the top producing the show, but uh, seemingly not. So I think it's a lot of those weird questions that are very company-based and not really writer-based. And I feel like it's a little bit disheartening in that level. Yeah, it's unfortunate because it gives the studio and the executives so much more leverage against the writers and the creative vision. Because, you know, if you're in a broadcast schedule, the showrunner can push back on some stuff and be like, no, I really want it to be like this. And they can't sit there and argue forever because they have to release the show. So I think that there's a certain 
amount of, okay, fine, you have this, we'll have that, and we'll compromise on this. Whereas if you're just sitting there holding your scripts going, please, sir, may we go to television now? Can you please produce these episodes? And they're like, "Eh, not until you make this tweak and that tweak. And can we make this person more likable? So uh, yeah, we'll watch this carefully. Yeah, I think we all know that Disney loves compromise, right? I think that's what they're known for (laughs) is just compromising until everybody's happy in in a weird convoluted way. But not not Tom Holland. Tom Holland is not happy about that. We're adding Disney to our list of enemies now. We're not going to be able to work in this town, Alex. We love you, Disney. I mean, the amount of Disney content that I've bought and purchased is uh, is too too long to list on this podcast. So we still love you. Paper Disney. Well, before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get exclusive content, opportunities, and merch, and we can keep producing a great show for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 153. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have your own TV run questions you would like answered in this very podcast, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Next week, we are going to be talking to Dan O'Keefe, who is a veteran comedy writer. He got his start on Seinfeld, and he's since worked on Silicon Valley, Veep, and my own show, Final Space. So we're going to be having a talk to him about his uh, career in comedy. It's going to be pretty exciting. Also, I'll be talking to him about the reality show on the lot that he wrote for. And so I'm very excited to talk about this very (laughs) deep cut that 10 people know about. Amazing. He also wrote for the Drew Carey show, if anyone knows that one. Oh, so there you go. We'll, we'll have a long conversation. All right. I'll see you next week. See you then.